because that's what we find going on in this, in this passage. Um, we're going to see this crowd make a decision about Jesus. And I want you to think about what's happened so far in John chapter 6. Like, what has gotten us to where we're at? I know we spent a lot of time there already, but if you remember, there's the, the big crowd of people that are joined together, and Jesus provides for them. There's 5,000 men, so anywhere from 20 to 40,000 people would be there, and Jesus feeds all of them with the five loaves and the two fish. The people really like that, so they want to make Jesus their, their political leader. They want the freedom from the Romans. They want a free meal ticket. They could just hang out with Jesus, and he'll take care of them and meet their needs, and, and he'll always give them food, and they don't have to worry about people stealing their land or taking their stuff. They can just be with, with Jesus. So they try to make him their political ruler, their, their king. And Jesus, we know that's not his timing. We know that's, that's not why he came then to give people free meals. He came to be, uh, he was the bread of life from heaven. He came to give spiritual life. That's what he came for. So his disciples are there. He sends the disciples away. We're, remember now, I know it's been the last month and a half we've been going through this. So he sends the disciples away on a boat. Uh, then he sends the crowd away. Then Jesus goes up into the mountain to pray. The crowd doesn't go too far. They apparently hang out somewhere around there. But while the disciples are going across the sea to the other side, it should have been a, a pretty quick journey for them, but they end up stuck in the middle of the sea for around nine hours because the wind and the wave is so crazy, and Jesus is up praying, and then Jesus sees that they're hurting, sees they need help, not that he didn't already know that. He sent them there for a purpose, for them to learn some, some lessons, so he goes down, he walks on the water. Remember, Peter is like, uh, Lord, if that be you, let me come out to you, let me walk on the water with you, so Jesus says, well, come on out, Peter. Peter starts walking. Remember, the, the storm gets too big in front of him, and he starts to fear, and he starts sinking in the water, and he says, Lord, help me. Jesus reaches out, helps him, pulls him up. They get on the boat. Storm stops. They're immediately on the other side where they're supposed to be. They get off the boat. There's some people there for them, but then the morning comes. I know I'm going quick through this, but you've heard it for a couple of, probably hour and a half we've spent so far if you break down all the time on this. But the people wake up on the other side. They're looking for breakfast. Where's Jesus? We need some breakfast. We don't have food. So they're looking around for Jesus. Where did he go? When did he leave? All of a sudden, miraculously, this, this fleet of ships shows up, and they give him a ride to the other side. They go find Jesus. They end up in the, the synagogue there, and Jesus starts teaching them. And he teaches them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. And they're like, how can you be from heaven? We know your mom and your dad. It's Mary and Joseph. And he, we realize Yes, his earthly parents were Mary and Joseph, but there was, we see the incarnation of Jesus there, being born of a virgin, right? And Joseph was his earthly father, but, Jesus, but God is heavenly father. So we see prophecy being fulfilled. So these people should know their scriptures. They should know the Old Testament here. They should have known that it was prophesied that there would be a Messiah that would come, that would be born of a virgin. And Jesus perfectly fit what that Messiah should be. But the people... We're rejecting that. They questioned that. How can you be from heaven? How can you be the bread of life? And Jesus goes in, goes in deeper and continues teaching them. He, he foretells of his crucifixion, speaking of, you must eat of my body and, and, and drink of my blood. And people are like, whoa, we can't eat your body and drink your blood. Like, that's not okay. And they totally miss what Jesus was talking about because Jesus explained himself earlier that to eat his body and, and to drink his blood was to come to him and was to believe in him. But the people were getting so tripped up that they weren't believing what he was saying. They weren't believing who he was. And they wouldn't look to him and they wouldn't claim him as the Messiah. They were doubting. They had questions. Lots of questions. 
but Jesus had clearly answered them. They just weren't, it wasn't what they wanted to hear. He wasn't the Messiah that they wanted. Speaking of his crucifixion, that was a stumbling block to them. In their minds, how could their great mighty warrior Messiah be crucified, be hung on a cross, bleed, and die? How could that happen? It was a stumbling block to them. But Jesus says, you must believe in me. You, you must come to me. You must believe in me. And Jesus kept pouring it out to them, declaring this truth to them. And we have this, this crowd who is struggling to believe. Jesus declares the reality of who he is, and the people are left with a choice. Now, in, in my mind, this, this crowd, I picture them packed into this synagogue. Like, I picture thousands of people. I, I could be off here, maybe it's only hundreds, but I believe there's a massive crowd because they were on the trail of Jesus trying to get miracles, trying to get food. So I picture this crowd packed in this synagogue listening to Jesus. They have a choice. Do they believe Him and stay? Or do they reject Him and leave? The crowd basically gets broken down into two groups. And I say basically because we learn a little bit about Judas here, of what he's going to do. So I say basically two groups here. We have the, the group that's thrill-seeking, trying to see what Jesus could do next. And then we have this group that is truth-seekers, or those seeking who Jesus really was and, and what he was about and what he was saying and what his message was. It's, it's nothing new. We have already seen throughout the ministry of Christ that people are great with, with Jesus providing for them and taking care of them, but when he starts to say stuff that they don't agree with or they don't want to hear, well, they're out, and the crowds walk away, and the people walk away. And I believe that we can still see that mentality and that attitude in people today, in the world today. And we'll talk about that as we go through this. But let's look at our text this morning. John chapter 6, starting in verse 60. We'll read down to 71. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me, except it were given him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back, and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Let's pray together and then we'll, we'll go through these verses. Dear Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for uh, 
your love. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your continued grace and your continued mercy. I pray that that we will look to you, that we will rest in your truth, that we will trust in your truth. Um, I pray that you'll just work in our hearts, Lord. I pray that you will challenge us, that you will uh, work in our hearts and our lives today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So if you would with me, let's try to picture this crowd this morning, packed into this synagogue. I don't know what this synagogue was like. I don't know how big it was. I mean, I mean it's here in, in Capernaum, verse 59 tells us, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So we have this crowd packed into this this synagogue. Was it huge? Was there thousands of people? I would like to think so, but I'm not sure. But Jesus had ju- just declared himself to be the true bread from heaven. He had just given this insight into his coming sacrificial crucifixion. His body would be broken and his blood would be poured out. And Pastor Matt talked about that last week from Hebrews 10. And I just wanted to run up here when he was done last week and jump right into this text because they fit so perfectly with Jesus being the sacrifice, the only sacrifice, the only possible payment to pay for our sin debt and to make us right before God. Jesus Christ was the last sacrifice. We don't have to continually make sacrifices to try to be right with God because Jesus did that. And he is the only one that could permanently do that. So we looked at that last week. Jesus had just declared the necessity of coming to him and believing on him. The only one that could offer healing and everlasting life. And we saw that in verse 35 of John chapter 6. So the crowd, if you remember the crowd through this whole thing, they've been grumbling. They've been murmuring about what Jesus was saying throughout his teaching. Throughout his whole message, we have this crowd. Oh, he can't say that. He can't do that. He can't be that. And they're murmuring, they're mumbling. They have been doubting, they've been questioning, they have been rejecting. Look what they say to Jesus in verse number 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they had heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Do you see the crowd? We can't listen to this anymore. We can't hear you say this anymore. And we're going to talk that, about that in a minute, but it's interesting at first reading you hear it, it's talking about here about his disciples. And that term you generally associate with the twelve that closely followed him. The, the twelve which they're apostles, but you associate disciples with apostles. But, but disciples here, when, when the verse tells us the disciples are, are talking to Jesus, It doesn't mean that they were true followers of Christ here. This word here means it's someone that attaches themselves to a teacher. So yes, they had attached themselves to Christ. Yes, they were following Christ around here. But it doesn't mean that they were true disciples of Christ, as we'll find out in a minute. This was members of the crowd that had superficially attached to Jesus. They had seen miracles They had experienced a free meal or two along the way. They were looking for a political deliverer. They were intrigued by what Jesus might do next. And that's why I call them thrill seekers. And we see them throughout the whole ministry of Christ, these people following Christ to see what he would do or how he could provide for them. 
They would not, however, buy into what Jesus was saying. They would not accept him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the true living bread from heaven. They would not believe that eternal life was found only in coming to and believing in Jesus Christ. So their response in the second part of verse 60 is, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? It's like it, it clicked to these people that following Jesus was more than just hanging around him. They're like, hold on, he has a, a message here. He's declaring these things, and the, the people decided, we can't listen to this stuff anymore. We don't buy into this stuff. We don't believe this stuff. That word hard saying means difficult, rough, offensive, or hard to accept. So they found the message of Christ offensive. They didn't want to hear that, that they needed more than themselves for salvation. They didn't want to hear that they had a, a sin problem. That, that they needed a Redeemer to forgive them for their sins. They didn't want to hear that their works were not good enough to make them right with God. So what do they say? Who can hear it? They're not saying it was incomprehensible. They were saying His words were offensive and unacceptable. So can you picture this? You picture Jesus declaring Himself to the people, and then you have this crowd kind of murmuring and mumbling. How can He say this? Who does He think He is? That's just unacceptable. I don't want to hear this anymore. I can't listen to this anymore. They didn't want to hear what he had to say, and they rejected his teachings. They didn't believe that he was from heaven or that he was the solution to their spiritual need. And that seems to be the response of the false disciples that followed Jesus. They could only follow for a time. Then when the message gets to be what they don't like, they're gone. Not true disciples of, of Christ. As long as Jesus did what they wanted, following him was not a problem. Do you see this pattern, though? I'm not just making this up. We see it all throughout the ministry of Christ. As long as Jesus was healing people, as long as he was performing miracles, as long as he gave them food, these thrill-seeking disciples were all about following Jesus. When he would present them with the truth of who he was and where he came from and what he came to do, then the crowd had a problem with him. They didn't want to hear that they were spiritually bankrupt. I mean, not a real popular message. I mean, just try going. I don't even know where to give you an example of a lot of people in Glenwood. Uh, you can't go to the mall and tell a lot of people there's, there's nobody there. But you, you try telling a large group of people that you're a dirty, rotten sinner and your sin separates you from God, and you'll get booed off the stage really quick. But it doesn't change the fact of the reality that, that people need Jesus. So they didn't want to hear that they were spiritually bankrupt. They needed to turn to Christ as the only source for salvation. Sure, some would come and some would believe in Christ and some would not walk or some would not walk away. But sadly, we still see this response today in people where, okay, Christ, I believe that you were a good guy and you you did some stuff and and you know you helped people and you, you helped poor people and you helped blind people and you did these things, but I don't like your, your message so much. Tell me about the, the good things Jesus did. 
but don't tell me that I'm, that I'm a sinner. Because I don't want to hear that. And, and I don't think I'm stretching this at all to say this stuff where people still have this response today where Jesus did some great things, but don't tell me that I need him. Following Jesus, we find people following Jesus because of what they want from him. We find people following Jesus to get what they want. And man, you can see that on a daily basis talking to people. Man, I'd, I used to believe in Jesus, but my mom was sick this one time and, and he didn't help her get better, so I don't believe, I don't believe in God anymore. You, time and time again we see these things. Well, the purpose of, of Jesus coming was not to make life perfect. And the purpose of believing in Jesus is not so that our life will have no problems. Look at his closest followers. How did their life end out? They were martyred for their faith in him. Trusting in Christ doesn't mean sunshine and rainbows for your life. It does mean that he's there to go to and to run to and to turn to when those difficult times come. But just because you don't like where your life is at doesn't mean the problem is with, with Jesus and him letting you down. His, his, his purpose was not to make our lives perfect in everything that we want them to be. His purpose was to come to be a sacrifice, to offer his life as a ransom for many, to shed his blood to make it possible so that we could have a right relationship with the Father. And through all that, the Father is glorified, and we can give glory to the Father. So don't be confused by this thing where, where if your life isn't perfect, Jesus doesn't love you or, or he's not real. We're guaranteed as believers that there are going to be some struggles and difficulties in life. Jesus is so much more than just giving us what we want, than, than being a, a, a genie to rub when we need something. He is so much more than that. And to only have that, that view of God where, God, give me what I want, is not a proper view of God. And it's not elevating God to who he is. That's putting us in the position of, of being a God. God, this is how it should be. Do it for me. If you don't do it for me, you're not real. That makes us the authority when, yes, God is there and we, we take him our needs, but we trust in him and the outcome that he gives and the way that he, that he works. All right, back to the text here. Uh, verse, verse number 61. We have this large group of disciples, and I say disciples loosely, doubting, rejecting, murmuring. Verse 61, when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? First of all, I want to point out that Jesus knew what they were murmuring about. He knew what they were thinking. He knew what their, their thoughts were. You ever try to walk into a room and decipher what everybody was grumbling about? Like you hear, something's not right in here, but it's hard to make out what's going on. You have to actually go ask somebody, hey, what's the problem here? Jesus, in this big group of people, knew what they were murmuring about. He knew what their problem was. He knew what they were saying and thinking. And he says, doth this offend you? That word offend comes from the Greek word scandalizo. Should sound a little familiar. 
what Jesus is asking them is, does this message trip you up? Does this message make you stumble? Does this message offend you? Does this message cause you to give up believing in me? You've been following me. You've been sailing across the sea to come find me. But now I talk and you don't like what I have to say. Is this what's going to cause you to trip up and to quit believing in me? Jesus knew already. His response clearly paints what is going on, though. He knows what's going on, so he tells the people basically what's going on in the form of a question. The false disciples, the thrill seekers were offended by the truth of Jesus, and they would abandon following him. Look at verse 62. What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? Do you remember one of the problems the people had with Jesus with his message? It was that Jesus claimed to come down from heaven. So he says to them, what if you see the Son of Man ascend back up to where he was? Basically, would, would you believe then? They didn't believe the claim that he was from heaven, so if you see me ascend back to where I was before, would you believe then? And there's a lot of problems that people would have with this. First of all, it implied that Jesus was eternal, that, that he was God. For him to be able to be preexistent and then come down and then you know, be born, born of a virgin, born a baby, live this, this life. So it would allude to his preexistence, to the fact that he was from heaven. So the people would have a huge problem with this, not acknowledging that he was in fact God in the flesh, but Jesus was God in the flesh. So the people would have a problem here. And then you could also pull out of this that Jesus is alluding to his, his crucifixion, being hung up on the cross there, and then dying, being buried, raising again. And then we see him ascending back up to heaven at that point. So you could see Jesus pointing ahead to this, which he had been pointing ahead to his crucifixion. So you can see all this stuff going on, and you could see how deep and how, how long we could talk about this for. But I just want to paint this quick, brief picture for you here that Jesus was laying the truth out in front of these people, and their response was rejection. They did not want to hear what Jesus had to say. So Jesus continues, verse 63. It is the spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So Jesus shows them the importance of what he is saying. He said that, that he, is, he is life, and he talks about here, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Jesus is addressing an audience that for the most part was trusting in their works for righteousness. And Jesus is telling them, the flesh profiteth nothing. The works of the flesh profit nothing for salvation. I mean, he's addressing a group of people that's trusting in themselves and their works to be right with God. And he tells them, that profits you nothing. Jesus had just given them the real solution to their sin problem. Their solution, the remedy to their sin problem was not in themselves, was not in their works, was not in their righteousness. It was in Jesus Christ. And they needed to come to him and believe on him to have this life. He had told them that their spiritual life comes through him alone. His words were spirit and life. His words revealed who He was. Accepting or rejecting His words separates true disciples from false ones. 
It exposes who the truth seekers are and who the thrill seekers are. And we're about to see that come out clearly here. Verse 64. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. Jesus, speaking to them here, says there's some of you that believe not. Straight up calls them out. And the verse tells us he knew exactly who, who they were. He knew who would believe. He, would know, he knew who would not believe. He also knew who would betray him. And we'll see more on who would betray him in the end of the chapter here. The problem of these people wasn't an information problem. It was a faith problem. They wouldn't believe in him. He had told them all they needed to know. Jesus had clearly explained himself the people just refused to believe. Now I want to make a, a point there. Because fleshly reasoning has a difficult time discerning spiritual truth. Fleshly reasoning has a difficult time discerning spiritual truth. And you remember later on as, as Paul writes how the, the crucifixion or the death of Christ is to the Jews a stumbling block? And it's to the Greeks' foolishness. It just a, a fleshly view of this of, okay, how could Jesus, how could Jesus die? How could his death, how could his blood pay for the sins of the world? How does that, how does that make any sense? From a fleshly view of man, how can one man pay for pay for my sin debt? But from a spiritual view, understanding that it's, it's a legal transaction of perfect, sinless, holy blood shed and poured out that could cover the sins of the world. Man, all of a sudden you're like, that's great news. It was impossible for me to be right with God, but Jesus died and shed His perfect blood and that legal transaction took place with the Father. And if I will come to Him and if I will believe on Him, I'm forgiven, and I'm declared righteous, and I have this right standing before God. Man, I'm thankful for that. But you can't see how that could be foolishness or a stumbling block to people who are looking for a different kind of, of Savior. Let's, let's continue here. Uh, verse number 65. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. So Jesus again reminds the people of the Father's working in salvation. And their response to this reminder, this is the third time Jesus, Jesus says that in just these few verses here. It's like they shrug their shoulders at his word. Like we don't care about God's working in salvation. They seem to be cold and hard-hearted. There's no repentance. There's no regard. We don't have them turning back to Jesus and saying, oh, please, please help me here. I believe you. I trust in you. I recognize that I am wrong before God and I need you. We just have them not caring. Look at verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. To me, that's one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. They had Jesus right in front of them. 
They had their solution right in front of them, yet they rejected. They continued to have hard hearts, and they walked away from their answer. They had the way, the truth, the life right in front of them, and they walk away. Their motives are exposed. Uh, One commentator I was reading said, What they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. What he wanted, or sorry, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. What did they want? They wanted more signs. They wanted more free meals. They wanted more miracles. What did Jesus want to give them? Life, forgiveness, everlasting life. They didn't want what he had to offer. They wouldn't receive it. Now picture this. Picture this this crowd starting to file out of the synagogue here. Starting to walk away. And Jesus had just been pouring himself out. Pleading with these people. He knew how they would respond. We saw that earlier. But he still taught. He knew who would betray him. But he still loved. He still tried to show them. He still tried to share this truth with them. Jesus giving them everything that he had here as far as trying to teach them the truth here. And we have the crowd filing out. I mean, imagine the human side and the the God side of Jesus there. The emotions going on here. Where you see these people walking away from their only answer for their sin problem. These people that you love, these people that you cared about walking out on you. So picture that. And then we have Jesus in verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Can you picture this? Like everybody's leaving Jesus here. People walking out. So Jesus turns to his closest followers, true disciples, and he says, Are are you going to go away also? Are are you going to leave too? Are you going to reject what I'm saying? Are you going to... Walk away. I mean, imagine yourself trying to teach people stuff. Everybody leaves. You turn to your one friend left. You got in the room. Hey, are you out too? I mean, could you imagine that? The emotions happening here. Don't you don't want to go away? Also, do you? We're about to see the difference between those that left and the twelve, or at least eleven of the twelve. Verse 68, when Simon Peter answered him, or then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you see the response of Peter here? Who are we going to go to? Why would we leave you? I don't know where the crowd thinks they are going, but you're the only one with the words of life. They might be be difficult to hear. It might not be what we want to hear, but you're the only one with those words. Why would we walk away? We believe. We are sure. You see the words he's using there? There's no doubt in his mind that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
I love his response. I mean, you, you think of this timing here with the crowd still possibly filing out, and Peter just tells Jesus, you have the words of life. We believe you. We are sure that you're the Christ, talking about the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We're not going anywhere. But think of the peer pressure happening here. You see thousands of people walking away and chairs start emptying and benches start emptying and you're starting to count people and you know you're counting around and man, everybody's leaving. But Peter is sure, Peter is confident that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed Messiah. We believe that you are who you say you are and we're not going anywhere. I love his, his passionate response. And you would really expect nothing less from this man who was quick to answer oftentimes, which got himself into trouble quite a bit. But here I appreciate his response, where we believe, we are sure. You can see his love for the Lord here. You can see his heart for the truth here. I wonder, though, because Jesus responds to him here, and I wonder what Peter was thinking about Jesus' response. Because if it was me talking to Jesus like this and seeing everybody leave, and I'm like, you know, I'm staying, and I'm one of your close followers, and I just told you what I think about you, I would be hoping Jesus would be like, thank you so much. You know, like, I love you, give you a big hug or something. Like, thrilled that you're staying with him. But look how Jesus responds here. Verse number 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? It's not attaboy, Peter. You know, thanks, thanks for staying around. It's Jesus reminding them, look, I've chose you twelve, and there's a problem with, with one of you that are here. I've picked you twelve as apostles, and one of you is a devil. One of my twelve closest followers is a devil. Judas is working with Satan, and he's going to betray me. Verse 71 tells us he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And it's, we have Jesus here telling, imagine being the twelve though and kind of wondering who it was. We'll see them down the road in a little bit, kind of, Lord, is it I? Is it I? But we have Judas here working with the devil. And it's interesting because Pastor Matt talked about this last week. We have a temporary victory for the devil would end up resulting in a permanent victory over sin and death for God. So we see in Satan, or sorry, in, in Judas betraying Jesus, how it looks like, man, the devil's, the devil's got this. I, I've killed their Messiah. But we have Jesus raising again and defeating death and sin and hell. And in, in thinking about this, these verses and the, the thoughts that's going on and in these 71 verses that we've looked at, we have the opportunity to recognize Jesus as so much more than a healer, than a, a doer of, of good, and a provider of meals. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one with the words of eternal life. And no matter what craziness is going on around us, we can rest confident knowing that our hope is found in Christ alone.
And I just think about the craziness in the world, the craziness that's going on. And it's hard to even pinpoint one to talk about right now because everywhere you look, every newspaper you read, every angle you see, it's chaos and it's disorder and it's uncertainty. I am thankful to have my confidence in the one that is the king of all kings. The one with the words, the life-giving words. I'm thankful I can trust in him and I don't have to try to rest in a new leader of the country that's going to fix my life. Because Jesus is the king and he is the one that I want to rest in and I want to put my faith and my hope and my trust in. Because life is so much bigger than the few years that we have on this earth. And Jesus is, is king of all. He's so much more than just day to day, give me what I need. He is the life giver, the healer for our spiritual problems. And we can trust in him and we can rest in him and we can rely on him to be declared righteous before the Father. And he deserves all praise and all glory and all honor and all that is directed at the Father as well. Let's pray.